you've probably noticed Gunner's not up here. Yes, I'm teaching again. Um, <clears throat> that is because he's on vacation, one, but actually there's a greater reason for that. And uh, Grace Point Church, it's a small church, uh, probably I would call it average size, but they take serious their commitment that the purpose of the church is to train up the body to do the work of the ministry. Um, Gunner's not a pastor that feels he has to do everything, um, but we are here to train up people to do the things that, that need to be done. And uh, he's so serious about that that he gives away his pulpit, and that's um, pretty secure or foolish. I don't know which. Um, but I will be here until the church empties, and then he'll probably take over again. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, we, we don't offer child care here at this church, but we do offer child education. And that's people watching your kids with a purpose. And your kids right now um, are back there learning uh, God's Word in an age-appropriate fashion. And parents, when you leave and take your kids home, the right thing to do is to ask them about what they learned. And I saw my daughter and my wife back there, so I know they're um, leading their class, and I saw them preparing this week and going to three different stores to buy whatever they need to buy to properly do things in whatever way they do it. I don't understand it. But I will tell you, there's certain things that kids will know when they leave, and parents, it's a great time to draw that out of the kids. I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, Let's see, what was the other one? That's it. Okay, so let's go ahead and read our passage for today. It's uh, Colossians 1. We're all the way up back to 19, but we're going to go all the way through verse 23. So let me pray, and then we'll read it together. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today as um, a mixed group of people. Uh, Everyone here, Father, whether they were brought here or they brought somebody else forward, they're here to isolate a portion of their time, their valuable time, uh, to spend time in your word. And Lord, we would ask that you would make your word worthwhile for each person. Yes, it stands alone, Lord, we know that, but Father, you know us. We have things in our mind. We have pressing needs for next week, and we have, we have issues from last week. And Lord, it's hard to get our mind off those things and just to focus. So we ask you, Lord God, to let your word dwell richly in each of us as we read it and let it get the response that you would have. And we trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1, verse um, 19 through 23. And uh, I'm using the uh, New American Standard 95 edition because that's what Gunner likes. But I don't really care what version you use. I get all I go around. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made minister. Lord, as we enter this passage of Scripture today, there's some challenges to it. There's some contextual issues. Lord, there's a message that you have for each of us, and I believe that message is, on the one hand, the same, but also personalized and different for each person. So, Lord God, um, speak through the worries of this world and nonsense of our hearts and help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in this. Amen. 
Um, last week, we looked at uh, Jesus Christ, his person. And this week, hit me a slide for you. Jesus Christ, his work. Jesus Christ, his work. What did he do? We saw somewhat who he was last week. This week, we want to see what he did. Now, last week, we saw, uh, we, we uh, let's see, before we dig into the text, let's do just a bit of review, I think. You'll recall from verses 1 through 8, Gunnar spoke on those, um, Paul was writing to people in Colossae, people he had never met. He was overjoyed that he had heard of the fruit bearing which characterized that body of believers, that church. And he knew that the gospel had really taken root and taken, something had taken place in these people because he was hearing what was going on. It made a difference. And Paul writes to these believers and encourages them then to grow in Christ even more. Not a put down, not a disappointment, but they had a foundation and he said, grow all the more. And he prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we learn here that a walk, uh, a worthy walk flows out of intimacy with God. There's that word again, intimacy. But we also learn that in order to grow in intimacy with God, we have to have some true information about God. We have to know the God we're talking about. There are facts about Jesus, about himself. And so last week we looked at Jesus Christ, his person. John chapter? Good. Colossians chapter? Hebrews chapter? And he, Philippians chapter 2, right? 1, 1, 1, and 2, right? Okay. And with that, see, they learned something, Gunner. Education here, I like it. With that in mind, intimacy with God is found only through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says this in, in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to God. The only thing that exists. There's no other way. Now, a word on intimacy, and I want to set some context here. There are several words we could use to describe this connection that we're talking about. Um, Connection, uh, fellowship, uh, knowledge, union. I use intimacy because I think that that English word in our time frame best conveys the heart of God in this matter. Uh, recall our key phrase in the book of Colossians. We'll get there in 127, but I brought it up. Uh, Colossians 127, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the theme of the whole book. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. And just as it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus, the great mystery of the Christian faith is that the fullness of Jesus is dwelling inside of us. The fullness of Jesus dwells in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we do very well to spend some time just thinking about this phrase this week when you're on your walk or out in the grove, Christ in you, and what implication that means to you, how that changes things. I know that it may seem that I'm attempting to be mystical or philosophical or hyper-spiritual on this point. I'm not that clever. I'm not saying that. Um, But still, God gives us a living illustration, and I like illustrations, gives us a living illustration to drive this point home. That illustration is found in Genesis 2 and 3. And this is, I think, necessary to look at, Genesis 2 and 3, because it sets context for the book of Colossians within the scope of the context of the entire Bible. So you know the story, I'll just kind of run through it. God created man. And God was apparently in the habit of walking through the Garden of Eden, giving instruction to Adam, talking to Adam, hanging out with Adam, if you will. 
And uh, still, Adam was alone, and he had no one like himself. So God created woman to be with man. And man's response, Adam says, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she came from me. And you know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Wow. You have to have voice in the Bible, folks, or it doesn't work. God says that in marriage, a man and a woman become one flesh. And the become one flesh is a source of a lot of discussion, especially with the soon-to-be-marrieds and the newly-marrieds. But seriously, what does the two become one flesh mean? Is it a reference to making babies? Or is it some sort of God-given spiritual connection which God binds the couple together spiritually? Or is it simply a declaration of leaving that family and starting your own family unit? And while there may be elements of all of the above, I suggest to you that our couples with 30 or 40 or 50 years of marriage under their belt would offer some great experiential insight into this two becoming one flesh. The fact is that in a healthy marriage, and I know all marriages are not healthy, I know that, but in a healthy marriage, over an extended period of time, there is a closeness, a connection, an understanding, yes, an intimacy developed that makes it that makes me incomplete without Michelle. And her incomplete without me. I could ask Esther right now what Isaac thinks about a certain issue, and she'll know. She knows what he thinks. And while you keep your unique identity in marriage, you also become like the other person. You become one flesh over time. You become one flesh. Now, I call this an illustration, but an illustration of what? Well, listen, God made all the animals male and female. And he set them up to be fruitful and multiply. And he, and he did that without much commentary. He just did it. But with man, God showcased the creation of man, and, and he showcased man's need for the woman. And God showcased his method of making that woman the only one in all creation capable of intimacy with that man. So there's something to be learned there. And I submit to you that God gives us marriage as the earthly event which best illustrates the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you. That God makes available to you. A union of oneness, of intimacy. And it's easy to see why God is so offended with simple religious rituals when intimacy is available. Something better. And we can actually prove this theorem By the response of the enemy. Let me prove this to you by Satan's response. Satan works in high order to destroy our marriages. And that's not just to make you miserable, even though I think he likes to make you miserable. But in destroying marriages, Satan distorts the truth found in the powerful imagery of marriage, imagery designed to point us to intimacy with God. Are you tracking with me here? This is just context, folks. And if you've experienced an unsuccessful marriage, yes, there were human reasons why it split, but Satan's fingerprints are all over those events. You were under spiritual attack, as every marriage in here is under. I had a friend text me this week from church here. He said, 
It's spiritual, John. I'm praying for you. It's spiritual. No, not on Michelle's part, on my part. Yeah, okay. In fact, isn't that exactly what we see in Genesis 3, where Satan works through marriage in order to destroy both man's intimacy with God and man's intimacy with his wife? It's in the same story. Recall the scene. In the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve free reign uh, with one proviso. He says to them, hey, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day you do so you will surely die. And what happens? Satan deceives the woman, and she eats. She passes the fruit to the man, and he eats. And the immediate results of this broken, a broken relationship with God. It says in Genesis 3.8, he says, Then the man heard the sound of God walking through the garden, and the wife and the man hid themselves among the trees. And then the Lord said, Adam, where are you? He said, Well, Lord, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Intimacy broken. Sin enters the world, and everything changes. The result of sin of the world is that man became afraid of God. The intimacy wasn't there. Man was no longer pure, no longer able, no longer capable of dwelling in intimacy with a pure and holy God. When man disobeys God, the Bible calls that sin. And just like sin causes separation between a husband and wife, our sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 says it this way. In fact, my wife got in my case. She says, you know, you don't give the guys the verse reference, just the chapter. Do you know why I do that? It's intentional. My hope is that you'll read the chapter, not just the verse. But I digress. I'll do what my wife says. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Now, when Adam and Eve began to have babies... Those babies were born into a sin environment. You know, you add a little botulism to a stew, the whole stew's poison. Add a little sin to the human race, the whole human race is in sin. Uh, Romans 5 says it this way, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. That's an interesting structure in that verse. The verse tells us that we're under sin because that's what entered the human race, but it also tells us that we don't have to blame Adam and Eve for our sin. Uh, we each have enough guilt of our own, and we've each done enough stupid things. And that sin puts us uh, in, as Paul put it a few weeks ago, it puts us in the domain of darkness. The principle here is this. Our sin hinders our intimacy with God. Hit the slide for me. Our sin hinders our intimacy with God. You could use a stronger word than hinders. Sin breaks intimacy. And as we move into our text today, Jesus enters the scene to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. And so enter our text, Colossians 1, chapter 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now last week, we complicated the lesson. We made it complex. We complicated the issue about Jesus being fully man and fully God. 
And there's nothing wrong with such complications as there are just certain things in life and theology that require us to wrestle with these truths if we're going to grasp and understand them. Christianity is a thinking person's game. But these are still concepts way above our pay grade. So we spent time on them. But this verse, the truth that through Jesus, God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross, this truth should never be complicated. This is a simple truth. This is a profound truth. It's called the gospel. And we already saw that all have sinned and fallen out of intimacy with God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're not in an intimate relationship. But God is the gold standard when it comes to justice. Justice. And in his justice, he declares that the wages of sin is death. He can't just wipe it out or overshadow it. He has to do something. Death there refers to not only physical death, initiated by the sin of our great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, but also the eternal conscious death of hell, the just consequences of sin. John calls this hell the lake of fire in uh, Revelation 21. And Jesus calls it, in Matthew 25, the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Whatever the imagery, a very negative place, agreed? Not the good place. But that's what our sin deserves. And still, we are talking here about escaping such a horrific end. So don't let it bog you down too much. And that is God's good pleasure. His good pleasure that we would not have to go there. God's desire is that without violating his justice we would be delivered out of the wages of our sin. Verse 19 says it again, For it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness dwell in him, and through Jesus to reconcile all things to him. It's God's good pleasure that we be reconciled to God. It's what he wants. It it blesses his socks off. And don't miss the second part. In order to maintain justice, a death had to be paid for sin. Hence the phrase, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It had to be if justice was going to be upheld. Now, the theological term, for those of you that like such things, is substitution. The chief theological concept in your salvation is the term substitution. Those of you who do math understand substitution. Jesus paid the penalty of your sin. He was substituted for you, when he died on the cross for you, in your place, in my place, substitution. we got to have verses on this. I know that. John 3.16, I think you may know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Substitution. Now, there are dozens and dozens of Bible passages which support this amazingly simple truth. But I'll give you just one more. Isaiah, excuse me, let's go to Romans 5. Romans 5, 6. Here's what he says. For while we were still helpless, that means in your sin, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, there's justice, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 
Wow, let that sink in. Yeah, but John, I've been a Christian all my life, both years. I know this stuff. Okay. You know, I used to hold up a $100 bill and offer it to anyone who would memorize Romans 5 word for word. Romans 5 may be the best chapter in the entire Bible. I quit doing that. Not because there were so many takers, but because there were so few. You want Romans 5 to sink in, but that's for another lesson. Okay, so how are we to take advantage of this free gift offered by God? Well, John 1.12 tells us, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, there's that righteous thing again, right, to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Receive, believe, perhaps the best English word that we have is the word trust. It conveys it well, trust. Anyone who trusts that Jesus paid for his or her sin can now become a child of God, or from the weeks past would be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Now, just a technicality here. We may accept the fact that Jesus substituted himself for Gunner's sin. A one-for-one transaction. Okay, I died on the cross for Gunner, one for Gunner. There you go. But how can the death of one man pay for the sins of any and every and all of those who would receive the free gift? Ah, and that's where we understand last week. Last week, Paul introduced Jesus as fully God. Not just one man, fully God. I mean, it's arguable if any one man could pay for all of Gunner's sins, let alone ours. But how much sin can be paid for if God himself was the one doing the paying, and that by his own death on the cross? Do you see the outline of the book? It actually makes sense. Jesus must be God if you're going to be saved from your sin. Because if he wasn't, only Gunner got saved, not the rest of you all. Reconciliation, restoration, forgiveness, whatever word you want to use, required the ultimate payment. And if you promise to be good, I'll let you peek into something above your pay grade. You ready? Look at verse 20. But don't get weird about this. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, here it is, whether things on earth or things in heaven? Things in heaven? Did you know that the entry of sin into God's perfect creation had a ripple effect into areas far outside our domain and far beyond our understanding? Somehow, Jesus' death on the cross is offered simply to us. But its far-reaching effect touches issues far above our pay grade. But we don't know what's going on, but something more is going on. Cool little phrase of verse. Don't get weird on it. Okay, back to earth. Jesus had to pay a big price because our sin was and is a big problem. And it's not as though we were innocent victims. Rather, we were willing participants. Look at verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated 
and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds. That is not passive language. What the Bible says about our pre-converted state is not simply that we were apathetic when it comes to things of God, but we were actually antagonistic in our relationship towards the things of God. The problem in our modern world today is not apathy, it's hostility. They don't like you people. And we know that we know that to be the case because the Bible says that's exactly what the issue is. Uh, Paul asserts this most strongly in his opening arguments for the book of Romans. In 118, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Those who suppress the truth. Why? Because they are antagonistic against the things of God. In fact, by the time Paul gets to Romans 8, if you know the book well, Paul says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Now, can such a one as that, hostile towards God, can such a one ever hope to fulfill his greatest need? And we said that need is intimacy with God. How can a person hostile to God ever have intimacy with God. The thing we all know we need, everyone out there in the world is an open book. You can start a conversation about spiritual things and, and they'll get on board. There's, they want to know. Everybody's missing something and they want that thing. Can such a one clean up his life enough to make himself presentable to God? Well, the answer is no. Yet. Yet. Don't you love the but God statements in the Bible? But God. Okay, this is one of those. Verse 22. Yet. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The possibility of reestablishing intimacy with God is found in Jesus who can introduce you to God in an acceptable state where God can now meet you and say hi and hang out with you an acceptable state which is holy and blameless. And that accomplished by Jesus' spilled blood on a cross as a sacrifice, as a substitution in your place and in my place. Now, in view of our passage of Scripture, it's certainly appropriate that we're going to celebrate or participate in communion today. It makes sense. A symbolic acknowledgement, an, uh, an act of remembrance of Jesus' blood spilled on us, spilled for us, and his bodily death in our place. And we need this perpetual reminder of the completed work of Jesus. It's not just a ritual, it's a reminder. He wants us to know these things. And not, not long after becoming a Christian, it's almost guaranteed that you will experience some sort of moral failure. God knows this. Gunner knows it, and you probably know it too. You may find yourself ashamed at the words that still come out of your mouth, or the unholy desires that still bounce around inside your mind. They're all there. And the the all-too-common response is to vow to get more serious about not thinking or not doing such and such. I failed at this gathering, so I will will never have non-Christian friends again. My my friend got arrested for DUI, and so uh, we're talking about this, and he said, I will never drink alcohol again. Uh huh. And while these hedges may seem wise, why they may seem wise, 
wouldn't a better response be, I will pursue a deeper intimacy with Jesus? Isn't that the better response? And what we do in effect is we create a Jesus plus religion in order to present ourselves pure and holy before God. We take steps, and that seems to make sense. Hence, Jesus gives us this perpetual reminder, communion, to remind us it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin and left the crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Such a simple truth. Simple. Just place your trust in him and what he has done and what he will do for you. Simple. So simple is this truth that Paul includes one of those dreaded if passages here in this text. Don't you hate those what if or those, those if then passages? I kind of wish they didn't exist. They bother me. Verse 23, if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and which I, Paul, was made a minister. But pay attention to what it says. If you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast in the faith, not moved away from the hope of the faith, of the gospel, It is clear from the epistles and the letters that men by this time of Paul's writing had infiltrated these young churches in an effort to add conditions to the gospel. The gospel plus circumcision. The the gospel plus law. The gospel plus abstaining from meat. And Paul makes it very clear that we may not switch to a Jesus plus religion. That's what he's saying here. Rather, we are to continue in faith alone. Don't be moved into the hope of the gospel plus position. Rather, let us not move away from the hope of the gospel alone. The gospel. Jesus spilled blood and bodily death to fully pay the penalty incurred by your sin and my sin. And all I have to do is say, that's what I trust, Lord. I have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. I want intimacy with God. Nothing else fulfills, but I have a sin problem. And he says, I paid that. And you say, I believe you, Lord. I believe. And let new life start. So let me ask you this. What stops you from simply trusting Jesus as the means of fixing your sin problem? A buddy of mine and I were talking, he goes, look, John, here's my thing. I just want to, I have some things I want to clean up first. I want to present myself a little, no, (laughs) don't go there. Simple trust. Really simple, really hard to do. Why? Yeah. What what keeps you from simply trusting? You know, and, and Christian, those of you who are Christians, a Christianity without intimacy will soon become very dissatisfying. It will not meet the need you had hoped it would do. And it's common to look for something to add to simple belief in the hopes of fixing the problem that Christianity didn't work for me. It's so important to be able to walk up to someone, Gunner, whoever else, say, Gunner, Christianity is not working for me. Oh, that's too transparent. We can't say it. It's not spiritual enough. But it's the truth. It may not work. 
So we try to add things in order to fill up what is empty within ourselves. Rather than seeking intimacy, we look to Jesus plus something else. And perhaps this is true for you. You see, the need of every believer is intimacy with God. That's the cure. But that's hard. So where are you tempted right now? And I saw some heads nodding at this, so I know you guys are wrestling with this. Where are you tempted right now to move into a Jesus plus way of thinking? Where does that temptation hold true for you? As we prepare for communion and we open our little symbols, get out your symbols here. We're moving to communion now. Worship team's going to start coming up, I think. This juice is a tangible reminder of Jesus' spilled blood. And the wafer is a tangible reminder of Jesus' bodily death. You know that it's really easy to make this a Jesus plus communion type thinking? Jesus plus this, it's a ritual. So don't do that. It's not a ritual. It's a reminder of what he's done. For in the taking of these elements, we actually proclaim that we trust Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing until that day that he comes. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then as you feel compelled, uh, go ahead and uh, partake of your uh, uh, juice and your wafer, and we'll, uh, we'll close in a little music. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Bible is so crystal clear that it's Jesus plus nothing. Because, Lord, many of us have tried to add just a little bit of flavor, a little bit of help, a little bit of ritual, a little bit of wisdom, common sense, and have fallen flat on our face over and over. Father, these things that we do are actually, uh, these, these, these rituals that we do, these promises, these vows, are truly of no value when it comes to living a, a Christian life, a, a holy life. But Lord, intimacy with you. Would you make it possible to reveal to each person here what their need is? Right now is a good time to think about what they've been involved in this week that may not be pleasing to the Lord, that may break intimacy with you. So we offer this to you as we take this reminder in Jesus' name. Amen.